Welcome to the Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 36, Continuous Improvement and Real Collaboration with Mark Hirschberg. Continuous improvement, we know it requires collaboration. But we also know that folks don't necessarily come into the workplace with great collaboration skills. Mark Hirschberg joins me to talk about how we get those great collaboration skills and why it's not being taught in universities. Or maybe it is. Mark has been teaching at MIT for 20 years. In addition, he's built multiple startup companies as a CTO. Mark Hirschberg, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Mark, tell us a little bit about you um, and what you are doing right now and how how you got to do what you're doing. I have this very interesting dual career. I came out of MIT in the 90s and started as a software engineer. I knew early on that I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. But I recognized that to become the CTO, it wasn't just about being the best engineer, the best software developer. There were all these other skills I needed. Leadership, hiring, team building, communicating, and no one had ever taught them to me. So I had to develop those skills in myself. As I began to do so, I realized these skills are not just for senior leaders, they are for everyone on the team. So I began to upskill my entire team. As I was doing that, MIT had done some surveys of the companies who come and hire our students. And in those surveys, the company said, these are the skills we wanna see in people we hire. Leadership, communicating, negotiating, the same skills, but we can't find them. And we're not just looking for them among MIT students, These are skills we want in everyone we hire from everywhere at all levels, but we can't find these skills. So MIT created a program to help instill these skills in our students. When I heard they were working on it, I reached out. I said, you know, I've been developing this in my team. Can I be of any help? So they invited me to help create the class and then asked me to help teach it, which I've been doing for the past 20 years. So I have my primary job where I'm a CTO, currently working as a fractional CTO, I help startups and Fortune 500s who want to create new innovative products. But then I have my parallel career where I've been teaching at MIT and elsewhere. And of course, the book, The Career Toolkit, and speaking and other things that go along with professional development. So let's wind back because it's very fascinating to me, something that you said that as a, as a new software de- uh, engineer who is interested in leadership, you realized that you needed to learn a about leadership as a separate skill. And I think that that's something that, you know, a lot of people studying out in their career don't necessarily recognize because they are so fascinated and so engaged in the thing. You know, so for example, I started my career with a biology degree, love biology, love science. And, um, you know, it took me a while to figure out that that was not enough, right? That there was more that was needed. So what for you kind of triggered that that spark? How, how did you come to that realization? 
I began to read some books just to try and learn a little more. I began actually with project management. I said, okay, well, the next step from being a software engineer back at that time was to do yeah. some project management, mm -hmm. whether it's as a director of engineering or as a project manager. And I read some books and started to realize there are these other skills. And in fact, one of the very best books I read, and I was so lucky to read this early on, was a book called Peopleware by uh, Tom DeMarco and Timothy Lister. The essence of Peopleware, the thesis of the book, is that most software projects fail. But they fail not for the technological reasons, but for the sociological reasons. They fail not because, oh, we really need a PhD to figure out how to write this software. You don't. Most things that we build in software, a 14-year-old can understand it. You have some data here, you put it over there, you transform it, you spit it out over there, simple. But it's the sociological reasons, it's the people reasons, it's that we didn't communicate the requirements well. It's that we forgot to take into account we have a legacy system over here. It's that we had a misunderstanding or people don't get along. That's why projects fail. And so the people side of it is critically important. And once I read that book, probably around age 23, 24, that's when I said, oh, wow, there's something interesting here and I need to learn more about it. So, you know, I talked a little bit before, and one of the things we talked about was Agile, and that is what I think, you know, Agile and Scrum, you know, coming into software development was supposed to address, I mean, it was to address the, the people side of it. And I know a lot of people looking at that now, and apologies to anyone who really is a, a really committed Agilist, but it's to have devolved into another set of artifacts and things you have to do and steps you have to go through as opposed to really focusing on, well, what are the people doing? How do you lead this? And, you know, as you said, the sociological side of it. Are you seeing that in organizations? Well, certainly we do see almost a violation of the spirit of Agile. When you read the Agile Manifesto, it says, I forget the exact wording, but output over process it is about delivering software to the end user. And that of course can mean software along with documentation or other things are useful to the user, but it's not the internal stuff for ourselves. And the fact that we now have all these processes and now you can get certified and all this other stuff, it feels like a violation of the spirit. I will say though, I think what Agile addresses and I'm a fan of it. I use Scrum mm -hmm. at most of my organizations. What it addresses is some of that communication issue to prevent, we had a misunderstanding on January 15th and we don't discover it until October 28th. We put it all together, go, oh my God, we just wasted months, right? We'll figure it out in two weeks, in four weeks. We'll figure it out sooner. So it addresses that. It also says, let's not waste time doing three months of trying to get that 200 page document purpose, uh, 200 page document correct. So we do save some issues. And I think it helps that way. I don't think it really does much to address the people issues in terms of interpersonal conflict, in terms of upskilling, in terms of teaching someone how to communicate better. It catches the mistakes sooner when we make them, but it doesn't proactively teach how to communicate better, how to create a better team any of those issues that's outside of what these processes typically incorporate. Well, and it does, I mean, it does 
force you into a much shorter learning cycle, right? So that, you know, you're not learning the big things at, at the end, you know, the, the, the project that fails at the end. And it does create this really nice structure for communication. But as you said, it doesn't necessarily teach people how to communicate. Um, and that's the, you know, I think is the the key. One of the things that I find in my in my coaching practice, Mark, is and I work with a lot with people who are early in their career and mid-career, is exactly that, uh, you know, that sense that now I'm in charge, right? I need to, I need to bring this team together, get them to do something together. And how I imagined it was going to be, which might be I'm going to tell them and then they're going to do it, isn't working for me. And it, you know, it is it is a surprise, right? So you've talked about MIT and what MIT has been doing, but I'm wondering across education, whether it's it's in, you know, computer software education or, you know, other STEAM, other, other STEM types of education, whether this is getting baked in or not, because what I got to tell you, what I'm seeing is it's not people are coming out with great technical skills that they're still, you know, really struggling on the people side. Um, so what are you seeing? That is consistent with what I'm seeing. And here's why that's the case. Most of our education, when you think back to your primary and secondary education, college, even a lot of the training we get on the job, it is knowledge transfer. I will say to you, here is this new software language and here are the grammatical rules. Here are some libraries or APIs you might wanna look at. Or if it's at work, here's our new accounting system. Here's how you fill out an expense report. Say, okay, great, I'm gonna memorize this knowledge. I'm gonna understand the three steps, the formula. It's memorizing it and regurgitating it. When do I use the knowledge for filling out expense reports? When you say, Mark, do your expense report, you go, okay, right, right. let me recall, right, here's how I fill it out. And that is easily done by having that one person up front broadcasting knowledge. It might be the teacher in front of the room. It might be on a podcast. It might be in a book. And that's great. And that is a good way to learn when it's knowledge transfer, when you're learning the periodic table. But when it comes to these skills, often referred to as soft skills, we refer to them sometimes as firm skills. When it comes to leadership or communicating, there's no algorithm. There's no three steps to memorize, no simple formula, just memorize this and regurgitate it. It's also now as cut and dry. No one says, by the way, just as you have to fill out your expense report every Friday at 4.50 before you leave, no one says, by the way, next Wednesday at 3.15 p.m., oh, that's when you have to lead. And next Tuesday morning at 9.52, be sure to communicate and use this communication technique. It's a lot more subtle when and how we do it. So we need to teach these skills in a very different way. That is not how we typically teach. Now, here is how you can develop these skills in yourself or even in your whole organization. Create peer learning groups. This is how we teach them at MIT. This is how it's done at top business schools. I recommend groups of about six to eight people, but there are ways to scale it up. And what you do is you have everyone get some content. You can take a book and yes, you can use my book and say, oh, we're going to read these 20 pages this week. If you don't want to use my book, use a different book, mm -hmm. use an article, use a great podcast like this one. Everyone listens to that podcast episode. And then you come together to discuss it because it's in that discussion. 
It's when we're talking about communication. I said, well, here's what I got out of that article. And you got something different. I said, oh, wow, I never really thought of it that way. And then someone else says, I have to communicate this to my team and I'm not sure how, and we all help her figure it out. Someone else says, oh, well, you know, I tried that and here's what worked for me. Here's what didn't work. Here's the pitfall. Go, wow, that's a really good point. We're going to learn it in a richer way than just that abstract, hey, here's that general concept. In fact, this follows the agile principle because we used to say abstractly, here's that document trying to explain every feature in the abstract. And we know we're not going to get it right. We know, oh, the button has to work this way and we're going to forget about some edge case. So what do we do? We do agile saying, build this button. And then we say, oh, you know what? You forgot that edge case in this button. In this learning, we say, here's this leadership concept, this communication concept. But then that discussion, we say, what about this edge case? What about that one? And that's where we start to get that richer understanding. And by the way, if you do this within your team or your organization, not only are you upskilling your employees, and by the way, this is at zero cost, right? We haven't said you have to buy anything other than maybe a book, but again, you can use free content. You're upskilling your entire team at no cost. You are creating better internal networking connections among team members. You are creating a common language for your team because now you all have that reference to that model, that analogy, that story. And you are creating better employee engagement. All of this completely free. So... It's, it sounds really, really great. And I got to tell you, you know, thinking back on, on my career in, in a corporate environment, that that is the kind of thing where someone would certainly, it, you, you have to have really good management support for that, right? Because if you, you know, take a look and there's six people over here and they're sitting in a conference room all right now, they're probably sitting in a Zoom meeting and having this discussion and they're not being productive, right? That is going to be looked at as a non-value added time, right? We're not actually generating value for the customer. Well, of course you are actually generating value for the customer, right? Um, and I'm very um, interested and, and supportive of the idea that we do this within our work time, right? We don't do this. We don't ask people to take their after work time to do it because that is very difficult for people who have lives and we all, we all have lives. So what's the, when, when somebody comes along and says, Hey, Mark, it sounds awesome, but I really don't want, you know, we do, we do 20 hours of training a year and, and 18 hours of it are going to be technical training. Um, you know, and sometimes you're lucky to get that. What's the, what's the answer to the leader who says, I don't want to actually invest it because it is, it is time, even if it's not, you know, sending people off to a, to a, an, you know, an MIT extension course. Here's a couple of ways to think about it. An analogy I learned from my friend, Charles Leiserson. He's a professor I teach with at MIT. So imagine a rectangle. So imagine you have a four by 10 rectangle and we're going to do a little bit of middle school math here. You have a four by 10 <laughs> rectangle. Right. You have to increase one of the sides by two units to maximize the area. So which side do you increase? The short side, the four, or the long side, the 10? Feel free to pause the podcast if you need a moment to think about. <laughs> okay, now that you've thought about, the answer, of course, is the short side. We go from four to six, that gives us 60 units. The other way would have given us 48. Okay, great, the math works. What does this have to do with anything we've been talking about? 
Well, when you increase that short side, let's think conceptually what's happening. We know it's six by 10. What you're doing is you're taking those two extra units and you are multiplying it by those 10. You're taking the two and you're amplifying it by that long side. If you put those two extra units on the long side, you're only amplifying it by the four, by the short side. All of us have long sides and short sides. We tend to focus on our long side. Now we have to do some of that. Our long sides are typically our domain. Well, my long sides, software. I'm better than the average person at software. I like to think I'm better than average even among software people, but I still have to keep learning. I have to learn the new technologies or I get out of date. But if I'm only learning on my long side, I become long and thin. I'm this really narrow rectangle and my overall area, my overall capability is very small. Think about someone you know who might be really brilliant, but they don't communicate well or they rub people the wrong way and no one wants to work with this guy. He's so difficult. You're thinking if he could just get a little better, he would be so much more effective. People would listen to him more. People would engage with him more. And it's not about that long side. He's already really good at that. It's that short side, those people skills he has to work on, getting just a little bit better. Not about being the most charming person in the world. Not about speaking on a TED stage, but gets a little bit better, you get a much better return. And so that's how we want to think about this. We always focus on our long side, but putting a little on our short side gives a better ROI. Imagine if every meeting was 2% better. You communicate 2% more effectively. What will that do to your bottom line? And so that's how we have to look at this. That's a great analogy. And, um, you know, if every meeting were 2% better, and, and a lot of people are doing a lot of work right now in meetings as opposed to working individually, um, you know, you could just even imagine the payoff, the, you know, the effectiveness, if you could even just figure out how to make a meeting communication and meeting better. So it could be a shorter meeting and then people could go and do other work. That would be very, very helpful. So you're talking about in the workplace, Mark, which is, which is great. Uh, I'm wondering about in education itself, in higher education, um, you know, undergraduate education, graduate education, and um, as, especially in business schools, because I think business schools are still not necessarily uh, producing those MBAs who really are strong on the people side, um, you know, that's, I think, and I, you know, I know that there are programs that are better than that and than others, but, but what would be the approach uh, in the academy to address this? We have to get more practical with these skills. It's not just the theory. It's not saying here's the concept but actually applying them and understanding the circumstances in which to do it and getting that diverse set of views, getting that practice doing it. If you think about a sports team, what do you do when you're on a sports team? Well, you might do certain drills. You might do scrimmage games, you practice. You might watch the tape of yourself or of the other team to learn and to plan. We don't do a great job of that. We generally just say, certainly at work, but even in learning where you just say, here's the knowledge, but we don't always get a chance to practice it very well. We don't always get a chance to reflect on it, to learn from others. And so by more of these interactive groups, even at the graduate level, even at some business schools, it's going to 
help us get a deeper understanding of these skills instead of just, here's three theories on management, write them down, regurgitate them on the test. Great, now you know it. We yeah. have to actually experience it in some way. And unfortunately, we can't always get the direct experience. I can't walk into my team and say, hey, I'm going to try this new leadership technique. I'm going to do it this afternoon at the end. I go, oh my God, that was terrible. Hey, everyone, do over. Forget the afternoon. Forget everything I said. We're going to rewind. Doesn't work that way. But in that peer learning group, when I hear, oh, you did that, and you can share what worked and what didn't and how it didn't work and what you would do differently, that's a close approximation. Not exactly as if I did it myself, but it's a very low cost, close approximation to gaining that experience. Would you change internships? Because I think this is another another place where there might be a massive opportunity um, to, you know, you, you actually get your student out into the workplace. They're going to do some work. And, and sometimes it's a great environment. It's not a great environment. Would you set up internships in this way? Would you would you would you group the interns and, and have them have these discussions? Would you would you pair them with um, people who are not interns or people who are working in the organization? There's two possible ways to do it. When we teach this at MIT, we have senior folks like myself who are years apart from being a student who yeah. help bring it in and connect it so that students can better understand it as they go through this experience. I do recommend when you create these peer learning groups, and by the way, I have a free download, a free download on my website that we'll mention later about how to create these groups. And it goes into the detail step-by-step step, how to think about creating it. There is some advantage to having people at the same level. You don't want, for example, a senior vice president and someone with two years experience in the same group. You're just gonna have this dynamic of seniority. It's gonna be hard. So I recommend you get people of relatively similar seniority levels they should be from different departments. You certainly shouldn't have a manager and a subordinate in the same group. There's even value to that diversity of someone from accounting, someone from sales, someone from finance. So you get these different perspectives and bring them all in. So when it comes to the interns, there is arguably some value if the intern is in the group, listening in, hearing from more experienced people with more experiences that the intern hasn't felt yet they might say, oh, okay, that's a really interesting circumstance. On the other hand, some things might just be too advanced for an intern. If you're 20 years old, you just might not have dealt with certain types of people issues. You haven't seen a year-long project and what happens on it. And so having a group that's oriented to just other interns and they share intern-level experiences might be easier to digest. I do recommend when you use this approach, say in high school, it's very helpful. I don't know if I could even relate well to a high school student to give relevant examples, but the high school students can certainly give relevant examples to each other. So there's some advantage to being at that same level of experience where you can give examples relevant to that group. So you're talking about essentially all these groups as really being um, self-led, right? Not necessarily having a facilitator in the, in the group. Um, what are the things? It depends. It depends. Uh, I would say for high school groups, for interns, for young people, for students at, that we teach at MIT, we do have them facilitated. As you get more experienced groups, you can go either way. And I talk about this in the guide. You can choose to have an experienced facilitator. Maybe it's someone from HR. Maybe you bring in outside facilitators. 
or if you have a group of people who are all very experienced, they might be able to be self-directing. You don't need a formal uh, facilitator for the group. I'm thinking about the folks that listen to this podcast, many of whom are internal or external lean consultants. And one of the challenges that we face, and I think the very positive movement in the lean community is towards really focusing on the people skills, on leadership as opposed to tools. We, you know, we love our tools and we still think our tools are incredibly important, but really, really focusing on what does it take to be a leader leading in a lean environment. I think, you know, that's true for someone who is really working in an agile or scrum environment as well. And I think, you know, we're moving away from, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think we're moving away from the big two week training class um, and, you know, then set, setting people out and, and really focusing more on, on coaching, uh, coaching leaders so that they could be coaches. I can imagine this actually being a fantastic way to take some of those leaders who are going through that process of becoming a manager or a leader who, who coaches their employees as opposed to one who is directing their employees. Um, have, you, have you seen that in, in organizations that are doing lean deployments? I know a few people have used this program in those ways. In fact, the way the program is set up, you can use it lots of different ways. You can say, we're just a peer group and we're going to be learning together for the next year or however long you do it at whatever frequency you want. You can set up groups around specific skills and say, here is our negotiating learning group. Here's our leadership group. Here's our communication group. And someone might pop in for a couple months and say, I want to work on my negotiation skills. I've done this for three months. Now I'm going to switch into a different group. You can also do groups. And if you do use my book, I have examples of how you can take pieces of my book for different goals and say, here's our new manager. So I believe the new manager sequence is about six or seven cycles. And it's read these pages, read this half chapter, read this section here. And you go through it together with a group of people who are about to become managers or just became managers who are all at that similar experience level. And it's going to help them with skills specifically oriented to that goal. So there's lots of different ways this can be applied. And now you mentioned, by the way, that a lot of people are sole practitioners. If you say, well, I don't have anyone to do this with, I don't have a company, you can just find other people. You can find other people through professional associations. You can create a local meetup group. This, of course, can be done online. So you can do this for yourself. If you do want to bring it to an organization, again, this is completely free. You can download it for free. And the copyright says you can do whatever you want with it. You just have to leave the copyright in place. It's almost like a, um, an open source license. So you can change the title. You can take my name off of it. You can put your name there and go up to your client and say, look at this brilliant idea I came up with. And you can sell this plan as your idea. Oh, well, thank you very much, Mark. That's, that's terrific. Uh, and, and I will give a shout out um, as I often do, uh, for those of us in the lean community who um, identify as female, that we do have, um, for, for women, we have the women in lean our table. And uh, we have a number of tables um, that I think operate very much like the, um, the way that you're talking 
Um, so if you're interested, if you're a woman and lean and you're interested in that, we have um, uh, the way to do that is to uh, just reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'll connect you uh, to that and to the multiple tables we have. Uh, we have peer learning happening um, all over the world in, in women and lean. So a little shout out there. But thanks, Mark. I think we'll be checking out your book um, as well. What are you going to do next? What's, what's your next step? For me, I'm continuing to work with clients. Obviously, there's a lot more happening with the book. Sales continue to grow. And now that things are opening up, I'm getting a lot more calls for speaking engagements now that people feel we can finally commit to them in 2022. The other thing I'm doing, I create an app for the book. Now, again, we've talked about one and done training isn't great. And I know often when you read a book, say, okay, well, that was really useful. And then you forget most of it three weeks later. So I created an app. I was surprised this app didn't exist. I thought I'd license it from someone, but it didn't exist. So I came up with a patent, built it into an app. When you download the companion app to the book, it's free on the Android and iPhone store. It's also linked from the website. That app, as long as you open it once a month so we know that you're active, each day it's going to pop up one of the reminders from the book. It's going to help keep these lessons top of mind. Could be the whole book. Maybe you said to just one particular skill like networking or leadership. And so each day, say, oh, at 9 a.m. or whenever you set, you get that little reminder. Go, right, that was a good tip. Swipe it away. Or you open it up when you say, I'm about to go into a networking event. What were those tips? And quickly go through it again. So I built that app for my book. And I've had a lot of other authors say, this is great. How do we do this? So we're coming out with a general version of this app that can support multiple books. That's going to come out in the next few months. So I'm also going to spend time in 2022 building out that and getting it into the hands of authors and readers. That's terrific. And I know I have a number of listeners who are authors and who are in the process of writing. Um, so uh, keep your eye out for what Mark's going to be doing with that. That does sound like a very, very helpful way to to um, to make sure that it's not just I read the book and I wish I could remember exactly what it was because it was so cool. That's 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 very interesting. Yeah, very helpful. Yeah. What what do you think is going to be happening in higher education or even as you, you know we're talking about high school? Are we are we moving towards more of a of a of a learning leadership and learning people skills? Um, I I love seeing the emphasis on on STEM that's happening. Um, I think it's really important. And I love seeing that it's really broadening in terms of the number of people who are, who are getting into STEM um, and the, the diversity of people. But um, do you sense that from where you sit that there is a change in, in a tech, technical education? Certainly for technical education, we have seen that push for STEM it is big at the university level. It's big at the high school level, certainly the, the school systems that have a little more resources. So I think we're making progress there. In terms of the people skills, I think we're still a long way off. Universities, unfortunately, they move very slowly. I really think it's gonna be 20 or 30 years before they really change and address this shortcoming. We do see some one-off programs. University of Michigan, for example, requires all the engineers to take this one semester course where they cover a whole bunch of topics, ranging from career planning to personal finance to just various adulting topics. 
but that's a very small step. And I think we need more colleges to do that. And they have to do more than just one lecture on one single topic. But I, I don't mean to criticize them. I'm glad they're taking yeah. a step in this direction. Yeah. So universities, I think it's going to be decades of change. The high school system, unfortunately, it's a lot harder because they already feel overburdened. They already feel we have so much to do trying to squeeze in more. And these are also things that are going to be harder to assess. I can test your knowledge of history, which is often done through memorization. Do you know these dates? I can test your knowledge of math, of science. I can look at your English essay and grade it somewhat objectively. It's a lot harder at scale to test your leadership skills, to test your networking skills, your communication skills, other than a very small written communication. So I think it's going to be a lot harder to get that into the school system, both because it's more content and it's harder to assess at scale. At the assessment piece is really, as you said, it's really difficult. It's, you know, I know it's difficult in the corporate environment, you know, that, uh, you know, sometimes we see people who have uh, amazing people and leadership skills in, you know, in their own small cadre, but who are perhaps introverted. Um, and uh, so they're not assessed as being, you know, by senior leadership as having those leadership skills, even though they the sort of the invisible people who are holding the department together, right? Um, and so, you know, doing that in a high school environment where people are still so much about developing who they are and just, you know, they're, they're not mature yet. You know, they're going to be very changeable from day to day. And if they make people mistakes, they could be really big people mistakes because, you know, they just think something is really funny and they want to play a practical joke or, or they're just not ready to do it yet. But um, yeah, but I, I wonder, you know, if there are opportunities, uh, certainly perhaps outside of school, you know, people who are working, for example, with robotics clubs, I know to to really be building this in. I mean, this is there's a huge opportunity there for the adults who come in to do that to lead the kids and to demonstrate. But there's also opportunities to um, to allow the the uh, young people up, you know, the time to to try to lead themselves or or to get positive feedback when they treat each other nicely. You know, those things I think are probably important and could be emphasized. You absolutely can do that. In fact, here's this is where we can use agile techniques. When you're working with your high school students at the end of every cycle, whether that's week, two weeks, month, whatever is appropriate, do some reflection with your team. Just like in agile, what do we do? We have that retrospective meeting and we talk about things such as what worked, what didn't work. Oh, we had that huge miscommunication. Okay, we should always send an email every time this happens. Okay, great, we know to do that going forward. You can do that with your teams, but you can choose in your Agile meetings or in these meetings with your students to talk about the people issues as well, to talk about, hey, Carl did a really great job stepping up and showing leadership because when there was a problem, Carl said, okay, here's how we can come together and fix it. And what if Alice does this and Bob does that, and then we can figure this out in the next hour or so. Good job, Carl, you didn't wait for someone to tell you what to do. And so by doing that type of reflection, particularly for 
for the young students. When we do that with our agile groups, it's more just, hey, Carl, here's a kudos. Maybe you have the, you give them the $25 gift card. Some companies do things like that. But when you do it with your younger students, pointing it out, and you have to be a lot more explicit, just helps raise their awareness. And this is really important, especially for younger folks in learning, when you don't even recognize that this skill exists, that this skill matters, you're not going to develop it. Even if we just change their recognition. I say to my students at MIT, we could spend a semester on each one of these topics and we don't have that time. But if I open the door for them, they then see a new opportunity and they can explore it on their own. So that's what you wanna do. That's the mentality to have. Raise the awareness of these particular skills with your younger students and help show them there's a path they can choose to go down to develop them. That's terrific because they have that time ahead of them to do that. And um, it, it really ties back to what you said about your own uh, life, Mark, where you, you had this realization from reading a book. If you had not picked up that book, who knows? Maybe you would have come to that realization anyway, but just having that door opened for you was really important. So that really um, is a great segue to my final question for you, which is, what is your advice to a young person studying out in their career? And I know you have an opportunity to give advice all the time. So, so let's hear it. It really is that rectangle analogy is recognizing we have long sides and short sides. Yes, keep developing the long sides. That's your expertise. But don't ignore those short sides. Because as you develop them, you will become so much more effective. And that can be whether it's a particular skill that we've talked about, like communication or leadership. It could just be knowledge in another area. If you're an engineer, learn a little bit about finance. I've read some accounting books. Not that I ever wanted to be an accountant, but now I understand financial so much better. Learn a little marketing. Learn a little sales. By growing our short sides, we make ourselves much more powerful in that long side. Grow your short side. That's terrific. Thank you very much. And thanks for journeying with me to the edges of lean. But before we close, can you please uh, give us a shout out to your website so people can uh, grab these amazing resources you have? My website is thecareertoolkitbook.com. And there, of course, you can learn more about the book, where to buy it, get in touch with me, follow me on social media. There's the app page that will take you where you can download the free app. There's blogs, so there's new content coming out all the time. And then, of course, the resources page that links to other free online resources. And, of course, the free downloads we mentioned, including that development guide, completely free. All of this at thecareertoolkitbook.com. All right. Thank you so much. This is Bella Enkelbach, and I'd like to thank Mark Hirschberg for being my guest on the Edges of Lean. How are you improving collaboration with the people you work with? And what do you think about how people are being educated in STEM these days? Find, learn more about Mark and get some of his great resources at https colon backslash backslash www.thecareertoolkitbook.com And you can also get the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all kinds of other places. Find me at leanforhumans.com or on LinkedIn or comment wherever you watch or listen and tell a friend about the ages of lean. Please join me in exploring more of the ages of lean. There's a lot to learn. 
and check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelberg. This is a Lean for Humans production.